We're in Isaiah chapter 31. If you've been along on this study of Isaiah, one of the things you've become accustomed to is sort of the shifts and movements in the book, the, the sort of cyclical pattern that we see from time to time in Isaiah, the prophet often moving from stating God's judgment on man's sin to giving promises of hope, and that, that theme keeps coming up. And sometimes, uh, if you're reading this devotionally, sometimes you may notice that within a paragraph or within even a, a sentence or two, it just sort of shifts from a, a description of man's sin and God's pending judgment on that, and then a statement of restoration and renewal that comes after his wrath. And the scholars who criticize the Bible, who, who like to try to take Scripture apart in a very critical way, will often attack the authenticity of Isaiah on that basis and saying, well, it, it's just sort of pieced together. This doesn't really flow. It, all of a sudden, this is like interjected here as if another writer sort of added this. And in one breath, God is judging, and in the next, he's bringing peace and righteousness. Those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ fully understand that redemption is the storyline throughout the Bible, that it is a message about a people who are sinful and rebellious and who are redeemed by God's grace, by the work of his son on the cross, and then who still do struggle, who still battle with sin and the work of transformation that goes on throughout our lives. And so we, we get that. Our story, as those who have been redeemed by God's grace, is one of, of God changing us into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. And, and so the marvel of it is that we who once were content as being lawbreakers as those who were opposed to God and as being rebels against him are now being changed by his grace and his spirit into people who love his law, who seek to obey him and strive to know the Savior better and to be like him. And we also learn the, the wonder and the joy of repentance, of what it means to be able to acknowledge that I have been walking in the wrong direction and turning and trusting in the Savior and walking after him. So these cycles in Isaiah are not unusual. They're really further evidence of a holy God who judges sin, but who also redeems sinners. And this morning in chapters 31 through 33, uh, I just want us to, to think through these, this work of transformation that he does. There's a couple things that we're going to see in this passage. In some sense, it's, it's a clear pointing forward to elements of the gospel, a coming king, a pouring out of the spirit, the repentance of his people. But then he talks a great deal about the, the fruit of that transformation, what it is to live like a follower of the righteous king. And so this morning, we're just going to survey several examples of that when we get to those. And, and these are things we need to see because as believers in Jesus Christ, our lives should be reflecting transformation. Our lives should be showing that we are being changed and, and our thinking and our actions is becoming different and more like our king. So we started last week in chapter 28. As I said to you last week, just for refreshing, this is chapters 28 to 35 are all part of one unit where God is primarily speaking to Judah, to the Jewish people in and around Jerusalem, and he is calling them out for their sin and, and speaking of judgment that faces them. Uh, these are the people who professed to belong to Yahweh. What sort of distinguishes this section of Scripture is that nearly all of the chapters begin with the word either ah, as the ESV often uses, or woe. You see it at the start of chapter 28, 29, 30, 31, and 33, skipped in 32. And the, the reason 32 doesn't start that way, or at least the probable reason, 
chapter headings, chapter divisions, verse divisions, all of that came a thousand years after Christ. That was all something that was added later on. It's very likely that 31 and 32 are just a unit together. 32 just flows right out of what he says in 31, and we'll see that when we get there. But, but the reason I, I say that to you about ah or woe is all of these chapters start with that, that word of lament, that word about some kind of of pain, woe or ah is a warning word that because of, of, of what you are doing, something is coming upon you. And so we already read last week, woe to those proud, drunken leaders who, who are acting arrogantly in their leadership. Woe to those in Jerusalem who are, they, they're not coming near to me with their hearts. They, they approach in activities of worship, but they're not actually worshiping the living God. Woe to a stubborn people who make plans, but they are not God's plans. And so we've already seen that. And now chapter 31 starts again. Isaiah 31 verse 1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Let's just set the historical framework for this. We are in the late 700s BC. This is where all of this is unfolding. It is a time when the Assyrian Empire is continuing to expand and has been doing so for at least a century, almost two at this point. You can see the Assyrian Empire there um, rooted in the, in the purple, sort of started from there, expanding to take the green and that brown area, and you have this in the notes too, and in, in, in that you have before you the paper notes as well. That brown area is Judah. That's sort of the area left for them to conquer. And so what's happening at this stage in time is the Assyrians have moved to the west and are moving down the Mediterranean and they are working their way. They've, they've taken Syria with its capital Damascus. They've taken Israel with its capital Samaria. And they're sort of moving to the west and south of Jerusalem and, and beginning to threaten to move into Judah right now. And so Judah is beginning to panic the arrangement that they had with the Assyrian Empire was to protect them from Israel and Syria. It wasn't so much a, we'll bribe you to protect us from you. It was a protection agreement sort of in general. And so their hope is that, that the Assyrian Empire will still leave them alone. And it's clear that that is not happening. The, the predator, uh, the, the protector, at least the, the, who they presumed was their protector, is now becoming the predator. And so they are beginning to, to face the possibility of a siege coming from the Assyrian army. So it's time for, in their minds, plan B. And they revert back to Egypt. That's what he describes here when he says right in the beginning, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. If you see on the map, southwest of Judah is Egypt. And Egypt is one of the stronger nations. The Assyrian Empire is the giant, but Egypt's still one that's a healthy nation, that's strong, that has some forces to protect. And, and we'll get to how all this plays out. In, in chapter 36, Isaiah goes back to narrative and, and sort of walks us through what happened with King Hezekiah and the dealings with Egypt and the protection ultimately from the Assyrians. But here it is, here's the warning that starts 31. Woe to you who say that you are God's people, who claim to belong to Yahweh, and who, when push comes to shove, decide to throw yourselves at the hands of the Egyptians, who, who decide to say, we don't know where God is, we don't know if God can be trusted in this, uh, we're just, we're going to go with a plan. We're going to trust horses and chariots. And, and, and God is very clear about the way that they are acting here, that it's not just a trust in Egypt, but it's chariots 
and horsemen that look strong. In fact, verse 3, the Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. The, the message there is you're pursuing that which is flesh and blood that will ultimately be destroyed to the point that if God, if, if God so chooses, the helper will fall, and the one that's being helped, Judah, thinking it's being helped by Egypt, will stumble as well. Egypt did have horses and chariots. Not to the level of the Assyrian army, but they had some level more than Judah. Horses and chariots, we've said this before, they are the elite weapons of the day. Um, they are not easy to come by, not easy to train, not easy to maintain. It's expensive to have horses in, in, in this kind of climate and culture. And the, Egypt, uh, the Assyrian army has it and has it in abundance. And the Assyrians at this point are, are beginning to experiment with cavalry. This is the first time that we know in history that, that there's the use of horses with riders on them because it's more agile than, than chariots. They can move around even quicker and come up upon those that they're going to attack. And so in Judah's mind, this, this just looks terrible. Assyria's on the doorstep. And so Egypt has horses and has some chariots. And that's why God then says, you're choosing man over me. You're choosing man over God. You're choosing animals that, that will get killed and men that will fall in battle over, over me and over my spirit and over my power that will bring down all when I choose. And you will pay a hard price for this. So that's the setting. God has been very clear about his desire to protect Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at, at verse 5, he, he makes that again abundantly clear, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect it and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. So Isaiah is saying in as clear terms as he can, you hear me? God will protect you. He's like a, a bird that soars over us and he will protect you. In fact, at the end of chapter 31, God then vows the defeat of the Assyrians. And if you look at verse 8, it says, And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword. He's saying, not only will the Assyrians fall, this army will be defeated, and it will be defeated by a sword, but man will have nothing to do with that sword, which is precisely God saying, this will be a supernatural deliverance which means you're going to have to trust me for this. This isn't about you getting backups. This is about you trusting me to deliver you. All right, so he's, he's set in, in 31, both condemnation, why are you going down to Egypt, but promise of deliverance. If, if, if you will trust me, there will be deliverance. And so 32, like I said, there, there's no real break between 31 and 32. 32 just keeps developing this idea of deliverance. He's delivering his people, and now 32 gets even more specific. Verse 1 says, Behold, look, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Talk about a turnaround now. We've been reading for the last few weeks about leaders, leaders who who revel in their own supposed greatness, who think that they are spectacular on their own, who try to create their own salvation, who scoff at the word of God, leaders who, who lead by oppression and by perverseness. We read about all of that last week. That, that's what's dominating the leadership scene in Judah at that point in history. And now suddenly there's this, God will deliver you from the Assyrians, and behold, look, a king will reign in righteousness 
And the princes, the one who ruled beneath that king, will rule in justice. A king is coming. Needless to say, if you're in Isaiah's day, 700 years before Jesus, the question is, who? Who is this king? When is this king coming? How will we know this king? Who could this be? And, and so at that point in time, no doubt, some of the discussion probably was about King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is on the throne. Hezekiah is a, is a good king. 2 Kings 18 describes Hezekiah as a man who, who removed the idols, who turned people back to worship in Jerusalem, to the worship of the living God. Hezekiah has his flaws. We'll, we'll see some of that as we look through the narration about that, that story, e even to the point of trying to, again, to sort of buy protection from the Assyrians. But, but ultimately, it is Hezekiah who, when that fails, who cries out for the Lord to help, who does come to Isaiah and seeks wisdom. But as we'll see in a few moments here from, from chapter 32, this king is more than Hezekiah. There's, there's more to this king and there's more to, to what he does and the transformation that takes place when this one is king than could ever be conceived of under Hezekiah. Hezekiah could be a, a sort of foretaste of a, of a good king, but what God's talking about here, what Isaiah is prophesying, is a great king. This is a king who reigns in righteousness, and who by his power and by his spirit transforms those beneath him so that even they learn to act in justice and righteousness. Well, we sort of see where this is going, don't we? Kind of see what king he's thinking about at this point. He's looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. This is a foretaste. Again, there's that sort of already not yet sense. There's, there's Hezekiah, who's a good king, who will do some good things, but there is coming one who is magnificent. This is a crucial point in these, in these chapters here, because he's saying there's, there's righteousness is coming, justice is coming, there will be a king who will transform this creation around you. But there's, a, there's another crucial turning point in, in chapter 32 that follows the coming of this king. Um, we'll talk about verses 9 through 14 in, in just a moment, but, but just quickly, it, it, he's moved from the coming of this king and, and, and what this king brings to a warning about the present day in verses 9 to 14. You're being complacent. You have this false sense of security that you're living in, and, and, and you're ignoring me. We've read cautions like this before. He's, he's essentially saying you're, you're living this almost agnostic kind of life. It's like, yeah, God's there, but he's not really part of everyday life. And so Isaiah 32, 9 to 14 is sort of this wake-up call. Stop acting like you've got it all under control. Stop acting like life is so good and, and you're going to protect yourselves and you don't need God because judgment is coming. And in fact, he says, you're, you're being complacent and joyous. Uh, let's see, into verse 13, that all the joyous houses in the exultant city, you're, you're sort of celebrating like everything is good. And then verse 14, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, empty places, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. All of the, all of the infrastructure around you will be inhabited by wild animals. That's all that's left. He said, you're, you're living it in this attitude of, we're good, we're secure, we got it. And he said, what's coming is devastation. The, the land is going to be deserted. If you continue down this path, you are headed toward greater disaster and there will be nothing left. And it's with that, trying to get them to see the hopelessness that truly exists for a people who will not turn back to the living God, that he then says this in verse 15. 
until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Think again. Current situation in Judah is the present-day leaders and rulers. There is, there is confusion. There's rebellion. There's false sense of security. All of this chaos, he says, until the Spirit is poured out. This will go from a scene of desertion and, and death, where he's described back in verse 14, to now when the Spirit comes, this wilderness becomes a growing, fruitful field. There is life. There is transformation that happens, and, and that which is dead is being made alive. Isaiah's audience, Old Testament audiences in general, don't have a full understanding of the Holy Spirit. And so when they hear this from Isaiah, we understand that the word for spirit in the Hebrew is breath, and so it's the idea that God will breathe, that this will come forth from God. Um, and, and so there's not necessarily a full understanding here of what God is saying, but it is that when God pours forth his spirit, the result will be life. There will be salvation, there will be rescue, there will be hope. And, and all of this, again, we've, we've alternated back and forth, but all of this is in that context, starting in verse 1, of a king will reign in righteousness. There is a king coming, and he will establish righteousness, and the Spirit of God will be poured out and will bring life. It's just another crucial turning point in this as he's looking forward to what God will do. But there's one other turning point that I think is important just to see before we get into the idea of, of transformation. It's back in chapter 31, and it's what precedes the king and the, the spirit. In chapter 31, after Isaiah condemns the people for thinking about fleeing to Egypt, he says in verse 6, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel, for in that day Everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. A king is coming who will reign in righteousness. God will breathe life upon you. He will pour out his spirit upon you. But what precedes that is repentance. That word in, in, in verse 6, turn, is the Hebrew word shuv. It's the idea of repentance. It, it's it's two sides of the same coin. When we think of repentance, we're thinking of turning from something, acknowledging that this is wrong, where I have been, where I have dwelt, what I have desired is wrong, and I am turning to the living God. I am believing and trusting fully in him. That's what repentance is, turning from and turning to, turning from self-reliance, turning to full trust in Yahweh. So think of what we've seen here so far. God is charged the people with sin. You're, you're making plans to, to trust in flesh instead of me. And I am telling you to repent, to turn, to, to stop revolting. And in the aftermath of repentance will come a righteous king. The, the land will be changed because one with righteousness and justice will rule. And he will pour out his spirit and bring life and fruit. It's a picture of glorious transformation of what God can and will do. Old Testament Jews, we see repeatedly, 
vowed on the one hand, we will obey you, we'll follow your law, and then struggled in that obedience. Time and time again, they they fall back to old ways. The promise of the Messiah and the pouring out of the Spirit speaks to us of the new covenant, the coming of one who will now put into his people a new heart, a heart that now is, is able to obey, is no longer enslaved to sin, that is able to respond to the righteousness of our King and enabled to, to behave righteously. We who trust in Jesus are not enslaved to sin. We can walk in righteousness. We can love justice and mercy. We can live out those things in our daily living. And that's this transformation that comes with the King who we know to be Jesus. here's what I wanted to get to now, is just some examples of that transformation that you see in attitude and action in this passage. Things that change, that Isaiah speaks of. Things that are important for us to see because these should be present in our lives. If these are evidences of transformation, then we who follow Jesus Christ should see these things happening, these qualities, these character traits in our own lives. And so pick up again, 32. Let me reread verse 1 and add verse 2 to it. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. You sort of get some imagery as he's describing here. Isaiah is saying that, that when the righteous king comes, when the one who rules with righteousness leads and now brings along a people of his very own, those who follow after him should protect the weak. One example of the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ is it causes us to be a people who, instead of being selfish, self-focused, all about self-protection, we become those who desire to protect the weak who care for them. And so he gives this imagery, four different Scenes all meant to paint one picture, a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, streams of water in a dry place, shade from a a great-sized rock in a weary land. what, What he's saying is that serving beneath a righteous king are leaders now who will rule with justice. The the leaders previously had been inclined to take advantage of the weak. The weak were there to be oppressed and to be used for an agenda. But he says now, he says those who are battered by hardship and weary to the point of exhaustion find shade. They find shelter. Where do they find that? They find that in, in, in God's people, in transformed people who become that, 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 that source of, of protection, who actually care about others and who love them and encourage them and don't just watch them in their struggle, but actually speak to them and come alongside them and and serve them in whatever ways they can. We are to be like our Savior, coming alongside the weak and and, and to the best that we are able, providing material help and, and being kind and compassionate. Instead of trampling the weary, which is what they were used to doing in that culture, we are to be like those who provide shelter during storms, those who whose ministry is like cool water to people who are thirsty. It's like shade on a, on a brutally hot, sunny day. That's what we are called to live out as we follow after our Savior. As much as it's possible to ease the burden in another person's life, we should try to do that. Jesus mercifully lifted the burden of sin and guilt off of us and has given us the privilege now of being able to come alongside and serve others. It, it, it's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 25 when he says, whatever you have done to the least of these. It, it's just... 
simple material things that he describes there, of feeding and clothing and, 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 and protecting. Well, the righteousness of our king flowing through us should lead us to, to ministries of hospitality and mercy and compassion and caring and, and, and being that source of, of those who, who aren't expecting a, a, a return for our service, but are just simply ministering the grace of God. As Bob was praying during the, the offering and, and, and thinking about our, our ministry in the community and, and our desire to not just be here and, and come here and, and find Jesus here, but our, our desire to be in the community and to, and to care for the community and to see the needs that, that we can participate in. Can't fix everything, I understand that, but, but we can be aware and we can be out in the community looking for places that we can serve, that we can help to protect the weak. This theme comes through again in, in, in verses 5 through 8 of, of 32, and I, I want to read them again later, but, but basically the, the, the point in verses 5 through 8 is there's a contrast between a scoundrel and a noble. The one harms people, the other helps. So that, that raises then the question just by way of application for you and I. Where are you on this? How about you? How are you, how are you providing shelter for people who are just weary from life's circumstances. They have faced the heat of, of difficulty time and time again. How are you coming alongside? How are you serving them? How are you seeking to, to give a cup of cold water, to give relief in some way, to, to care for others? What are you doing to help someone who needs mercy? If you're struggling with that, and, and you're saying, great, now I feel convicted about this. That's the beauty of chapter 31 saying, turn. Remember, repentance is what precedes this. And, and, and God has grace for us to repent and to say, I have not been doing this well. And I need grace. I need, to, I need to turn and I need to look for opportunities to serve. How we follow after Christ in terms of mercy and care for others is a demonstration of our living out that gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, let me read on another one here. Um, Isaiah 32, verse 3. Again, the righteous king comes. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. Second evidence of our king's gracious transforming work is the God-given ability to now perceive, to comprehend truth, and to minister truth. Back in chapter 29, we read when God repeated his judgment on the people of Judah that he gave when he called Isaiah into ministry in Isaiah chapter 6, which was, as you proclaim the word because of the people's rebellion, your preaching will cause their eyes to go shut, their ears to, to close up in front of you, their hearts will get hard, they will stubbornly turn against the preaching of the word. Now this is all being reversed. The deep sleep that, that comes over people who aren't seeing the truth, he's now saying, now, now their eyes will not be closed. Their ears will give attention. Their heart will hasten toward now what they hear and what they know. When the king of righteousness comes, when people repent and turn to him and his spirit is poured out, they will see his truth. They will read his word. They, they, will, they will have the joy of seeing scripture now as living and active and speaking into their lives and teaching them and encouraging them. And the joy that comes with them, sharing that with others, discipling others in an understanding of the truth. 
When this happens, the people who previously could not comprehend God's ways now will be able to live in them and speak them to others. That's why he says the stammerer now can speak distinctly. Remember Moses with the, who am I? I, I, I am kind of faulty at speech. I'm slow at speech. You don't want me talking to people. And what he says here is, allow God to work in this. He will pour out his spirit and God will give you words to speak distinctly his, his truth. If you will trust in him and if you will repent and turn to him. This is the transforming work of the king. And I would say to you then that it, it, it brings up questions of our interaction with the word of God by way of application. How is your appetite for God's truth, for taking in and receiving God's truth, for reading the Bible? Do you take time to meditate on it? Do you look to it for wisdom and for help? Do you find as you read scripture that there is conviction and there is hope that there is the living and active word speaking to you about your sin and areas where you need encouragement? Are you being discipled in God's truth? Are you taking God's truth and, and using it to teach someone else, to help someone else learn these things? If your eyes and ears have been opened to God's truth, be a steward of that treasure. Realize the truth that is God's word is a treasure given to you and I. Be a good steward of that. All right, let me read on. Verse 5. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands." Verses 5 to 8 set this contrast. The heart of this is a contrast between the noble on one hand and the fool and the scoundrel on the other hand. The word noble, sometimes we think of royalty related to that. The Hebrew word can have some of that connotation to it, the idea of royalty. Um, but it, it really, literally, the root of it means one who is able to act freely, able to, to do as he pleases. And in this context, we get our understanding of what he means by noble, both by way of contrast, because he's contrasting the noble with the fool and the, and the scoundrel. So we, we're helped to understand what he means by noble there. And then by verse 8, when he says, the noble plans noble things and on noble things he stands. He, he seems to be saying here that the noble person is able to freely, generously serve others, is able to do things for the benefit of others. Because the contrast is this. The fool, he says, leaves the hungry unsatisfied and leaves the thirsty with nothing to drink. The fool just is about life, my life, doing what I want, could care less about others, utters error, he says, um, practices ungodliness. The fool is just about pleasing self and could care less about those who are hungry and thirsty. The scoundrel is the next step. The scoundrel is the one who sees the hungry and thirsty and says, ah, oh, this is someone to take advantage of. This is someone I can oppress and get something out of in some way. And so the scoundrel goes to the point of even devising evil against that person to take advantage of them. So the noble is contrasted to that, uses what's at his or her disposal to, to serve and be compassionate. The same kind of generosity we talked about when we talked about protecting the weak. But the point that I, I just want you to see here is really in verse 5. He says, the fool will no more or no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. The, the, the people needed a righteous king 
to transform them because their thinking was completely backwards, because they were calling fools noble. They were treating scoundrels as if they were the ones who should lead, and those who were noble they were disregarding. They had completely reversed what is God's design and, and were, were, were giving credit to those who were taking advantage of other people. They needed a righteous king to transform their warped ways of thinking. This echoes again back to the familiar verse in Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, and bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe to you as a culture when you reverse everything that God has designed. And so when he says this in verse 5, when the righteous king comes, at that point the fool will no longer be called noble. That was the norm then, and it is the norm in our culture today. Godless Cultures reverse what God says and they applaud the things that God calls evil. Godless cultures stand and, and they applaud arrogance and immorality and sin and riches and violence. They find ways to justify all of this stuff. And, and we need the transforming work of God to change hearts to see that this is evil. We need a righteous king who demonstrates that, that the character trait that is to be admired is humility the emptying of oneself for the, the benefit of others. We need God's spirit to fill his people so that we follow our king and discern between good and evil. That's really the, the heart of this. The fool will no more be called noble. You are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ when you are beginning to see good for good and evil for evil and you're, you're no longer cheering on the evil or cheering on the one just because of their accomplishments or possessions or trying to value that person because of things that they have, but rather you are seeing that what God desires is character. It's uprightness, it's integrity, it's compassion and service. All right, one other example of this transforming work. I mentioned this section to you before, verses 9 through 14. I'll encourage you to read it. It's the putting away of complacency. This is where Isaiah condemns. So he says, verse 9, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. A lot of question by commentators. Why in particular he's talking to women here? It just seems what's clear is Isaiah is speaking to a different sector, but it's talking about the very same sins that are, are characterizing the culture. You are living with an attitude of complacency, of of false security. You're not listening to the Lord. You're not fearing the Lord. He'll go on in this and he'll, he'll challenge them to mourn, to grieve their sin, to, to take on the, 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 the appearance of repentance and mourning and grieving because they are just acting like Yahweh is just some ancillary part that they can just keep around. Yahweh is the, you know, in case of fire, in case of emergency, break glass kind of thing. When it gets really bad, that's when we, we break the glass for Yahweh because that's when we actually need Yahweh and the rest of the time, Yahweh functionally is just not part of life. And he is condemning them and commanding them to stand up and listen and pay attention and learn the fear of the Lord and grieve for their sin. When King Jesus rules your life, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, he will not settle for playing a supporting role in your life. He's not there as the supporting actor who just comes in with the line when you need it. He is there to be Lord of your life. He does not want to be pushed to the background and, and, and called on only when you've exhausted all other resources and figured now might be the time to, to talk to the Lord. 
And that's what he's challenging them here is this complacency. That Hebrew word for complacent, the root of it means to stretch out or lie down. Um, think about the, the, the new dog who's sort of skittish and nervous and, and, and isn't comfortable with people. And the old dog who just walks up to you, lays down, rolls over on his back and says, just rub my belly, right? Stretched out. It's because the word for complacent has the idea of trust in it. It is, I trust you. I'm willing to, to lie here and be completely vulnerable because I, I trust you. And so when he condemns them for being complacent, uh, of having this attitude um, in verse 10, you will shudder, you complacent women, he, he's speaking, not, not praising them for their trust in him. He is condemning them because they have put their trust in their leaders. They, they think, life's good. I got a house. Everything's okay. I got nothing to worry about. And he is saying, no, no, you need, you need to put your trust in the Lord. I, the equivalent, I think, maybe for you and I to think about this, we're not under the same kind of threat that the people of Judah were, but it, it is in those moments, those seasons sometimes when we are struggling spiritually, when, when our spiritual lives just seem like we are drifting far from fellowship with the Lord, and our prayer lives just are not good, and the devotional life is worse, and we're not eager to be communing with other believers, and we're just sort of withdrawing and, and, and becoming really shallow in our spiritual walk, and yet, and yet in those moments somehow sort of thinking that, ah, well, this is okay. That's the picture of complacency. It's just, I, I'm all right here. I, I, I still got, I've got God in my back pocket when I need him. I've still got my ticket to heaven. I can still pray when there's trouble. And God is condemning that attitude. He says to them, be like mourners. Be like those who are grieving your sin. Because for all of the good times they were having, they are missing the fact that life is falling apart around them. And God is clearly at work. Because in fact, he, he goes on and, and says there in verse 14, I think we read it before, the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill watched how we come dens. He, he's, he's already made this clear now to them. Don't, don't treat God with contempt. Don't treat me with contempt or complacency. Because I'll, I'll pull things out from around you if need be. It will be emptied out around you if, if that's what it takes ultimately to, to gain your attention. The righteous king is to be the ruler of his people's lives, and we should never grow complacent about being his subjects. He is our king, and he is our Lord. I want to finish with chapter 33 because I think this just sort of ties it together, this whole section, and it's, it begins with a really curious statement. He says at the beginning of Isaiah 33, Ah, you, or woe again, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. The question, of course, is who is this? Who's this destroyer? Um, we've been watching God speak to Judah throughout all of this passage, but this doesn't feel or sound like Judah as being the one who is destroying um, it, he really seems to be speaking here at this point back to Assyria. And, and, and he's beginning to forecast what's going to happen with the nation of Assyria because the nation of Assyria deals treacherously. They are deceptive. They are destructive. Even in their dealings with King Hezekiah, there's elements of that deception that, that we'll see. Um, that They often seem to get away with evil. And so when it came to, to Judah, the Jews foolishly thought, well, we can keep Assyria at bay by paying them. And then that didn't work. 
their tribute wasn't received, and there was no longer any kind of protection. And so what's happening at the start of chapter 33, I would suggest to you, is what's commanded and prophesied back in chapter 31, which was the turn, repent, stop running to Egypt, stop revolting against God, and turn. You who have revolted must repent. And chapter 33 finally signals what it looks like at the beginning of that kind of repentance. Verse 2 O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation at the time of trouble. And Isaiah then goes on from there and he explains, stop exalting men, princes, diplomacy, armies, horses. Only God can be exalted. Only God is glorious. And so there's, there's this sort of glimmer that's coming to, to the people as they are saying, ah, Lord, be gracious to us. You must save us. Only God could sweep away the enemy as he will go on to describe in verse 3, could scatter the nations. But Judah, to get there, had to come to the end of itself. Some of us have testimonies that we can share of exactly that, of how God had to bring us to the place when when everything was, was a mess, we finally said, wait a minute, I've read about this Jesus, and, and we, we trusted in Jesus. And, and it's as if Judah has to come to that place, because you see it in verses 7 and 8. Isaiah 33, verse 7, Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys, the diplomats of peace, weep bitterly. The highways lay waste, the traveler ceases, covenants are broken, cities are despised, there is no regard for man, the land mourns and languishes. This is likely describing the scene for us after Hezekiah sends envoys down to meet the, the, the general from the Assyrian army and to try to pay tribute, to try to buy protection in some way, and it fails. And they now are learning that the army of the Assyrians will continue to come toward them and will lay siege to Jerusalem. There is no longer hope for a covenant. There's no more peace deal. The land is now filled with mourning. They have been brought to the place, humbled to the place, where they are on the verge of, of their own destruction. And suddenly they are grieving and mourning, and all of the joy and complacency of prior days is over. And it's into that that verse 10 speaks, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. We find that to be true. That so often when we've, we've really been striving and really pushing and really trying to fix and really trying to make it right, and, and, and finally we realize, Lord, I've not prayed, I've not asked for your help, I've not bowed before you, I, I surrender to you, I need you to work, I need you to do something. And, and God, in his kindness, has not abandoned the people at this point when they are languishing and mourning, God says, now I will arise. Now what you will see is the work of your mighty God. Now you will see God and his power to the point that he says then in verse 13, you can speak this to the nations far and wide. Tell them what I have done. You, you better acknowledge my might and my power, he says in verse 14. He calls himself a consuming fire. 
and says that the mark of those who are genuinely repentant and who are truly seeking after Yahweh will be a, a righteousness, a desire for righteousness, a detesting of oppression, a people who now want to walk after their king, who now exalt their king and say, you lead us. You are the one who is strong and mighty and righteous. And for those who follow the king, there is glorious transformation. Chapter 33, verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Verse 20. Behold, Zion, look, Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. He's, he's painting this description for them in these final verses of, 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 of what it means to be following after the righteous king, to now dwell in this immovable tent that is secure, that whether the wind blows or the sun beats down or the army comes, God has said, you are mine. You belong to me and you are secure. He gives this picture of flowing rivers and streams and no longer are there warships or ships of trade that are traveling. These are just beautiful flowing rivers because the God is the provider. God is the one who is providing for his people and caring for his people and they are resting in him. And he is our king and he will save us. Now, it's one last statement here that I, I think flows from right out of, he just used the, the rivers and said, no galley with oars, no, no warships, no big trade ships, no commercial liners. Anyway, it's just, it's God and, and, and life and land and his provision for you. And then he comes back in verse 23. And he says, your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. This picture, this last one, I think is, is so interesting. The ship comes back again. The, the, the nautical picture, and he pictures a ship that is battered. Its rigging is loose. The sails can't be set. It's a weakened vessel that seems to the point of, of just broken downness. And, and, and what Isaiah seems to be saying here at the end of chapter 33, God's point here is that you cannot win the battle alone. You, you, you cannot do this. You and I are that, that broken down ship and yet God is the one who must sustain us. God is the one who, who sets the course and charts the course of the rivers. For all of, our, all of our strategies are not enough, all of our strength is not enough, all of our armies are not enough, all of our plan Bs are not enough, all of our working and striving and willing and fighting, all of it's not enough. And in the end, he gives this picture of this broken down vessel and yet says... All the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. I would contrast this picture here with, with a much more familiar picture from Isaiah that, that most of us have seen in plaques and paintings and, and drawings. Think about the end of Isaiah chapter 40. There's the familiar passage. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Some of you can recite this. I know they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk 
and not grow faint. You've seen that, right? On people's walls somewhere with a picture of an eagle soaring and it's a majestic picture and it's a right picture, it's a good picture. But I wanna give you, I wanna have you just think of a little different picture. We used to, when, when we lived in Alaska, we'd go down to the docks and we would walk around and see the fishing boats. It was an island town of 3,000 people. There wasn't a lot to do. We saw a lot of fishing boats. We did a lot of walks on docks. And there were big ones and shiny ones and powerful ones and tall ones. And then there was inevitably in there, there was like the houseboat that you thought, how is anybody even living in this thing? How is this thing even still afloat in the harbor? It is weary. It is tired. It, it looks like it's ready to sink in a moment. And all those boats all had names on them. We had people from our church who had, you know, Providence was the name of one, and Trinity, and they all had stories that, that go with those names. And, and, and all I could think of as I came to the end of this chapter is just picturing one of those battered, broken down, tired boats, and all that it says on the back is forgiven. It is by God's grace, through our our weariness and our struggles, our God still is gracious to forgive. And still at the end of this says, your cords are hanging loose, you look terrible, there's, there's sail, you can't even get the sail up anymore. But by repenting and following me, all your iniquity will be forgiven. You will belong to him. If you are not this morning, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, would today, would it be the day that you would come to the place of saying, I, I need to turn to this. I've, I've been pursuing my own ambition, my own sort of religion, my own this or that, and, and I believe that Jesus Christ came and he died for my sin to take the judgment that I deserve, that I could be made right and be forgiven. I pray that today would be that day for you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the King who is Jesus. I thank you that we get the privilege today in our day to be able to read this in hindsight and to see this righteous King and the pouring out of your spirit as things that have come and been fulfilled in the Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that the King who gave his life as a ransom for sinners is risen and he is coming again as Lord in power. And when he does... Peace will fill the land. Lord, help us as a body of believers, those who profess here as followers of Christ and members of Grace Bible Church, would we be a people who would, who would provide protection for the weak? Would we be those who would, who would discern well between good and evil, who would, who would minister your truth, who would love your word and seek to disciple others in it? Help us to, to evidence the fruit of transformation, the, the renewing work of your spirit within us. And Lord, we, we would pray that for no other reason than that you would be exalted, than that you would be glorified, that by our lives, people would see you as greater and stronger and mightier. Lord, help us to, to live as those who depend on you and who rest in you, who hope in you, and in all of this, who exalt you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.